Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, brought to you by The China Project. Subscribe to The China Project to get the early release, ad-free version of this podcast every week. And of course, you also get our daily newsletter, The Daily Dispatch, simply the best way there is to stay informed about China. On top of all that, you will have access to all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. And if you like this podcast, you will love our next China event on November 2nd in New York with a special VIP evening featuring a live Seneca podcast on November 1st. It's going to be a night and a day of the most interesting and informative discussions on China you'll hear this year and great networking to boot. Please come introduce yourself to me and to the whole China Project team. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm going to change things up a bit and start this week's show off with one of the absolute best talks I have heard. A talk by Robert Daly, director of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States, that had me actually shouting in emphatic agreement, marveling at the skill with which the talk was delivered and the elegant turn of phrase, uh, but most of all, thinking very deeply about the really profound fundamental issues that, that it raised. Uh, perhaps some of you have heard me give my own talk before about the qualities that I look for, that I enjoin everyone to look for. In anyone who's offering analysis or policy prescriptions about China, I talk about five precepts, which boil down to humility, sensitivity to sources of bias, holism, historical acuity, and cognitive empathy, probably most importantly. When I first set out to, to sort of describe these qualities, one of the people that I had firmly in mind was Robert Daly. Listen to his talk and you will see every one of these qualities in ample evidence. Now, this talk was delivered over a year ago on June 24th, 2022 at the Friday Forum put on by the organization Faith and Law in Washington, D.C. It's unedited, except to clean up the original sound a bit, and it's quite brief at just over 30 minutes. So after you've listened to it for the remainder of this episode, I'll be chatting with Robert about the substance of his talk and other related things. So please enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. Thank you. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. Uh, the title of my talk today, after which I look forward to a conversation with all of you, is, Is Our Foreign Policy Good? American Moral Absolutism and the China Challenge. I was invited a few months ago by Lauren to give uh, a talk about U.S.-China relations from an explicitly Christian point of view. And i got to say, I, 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 my heart leapt at that. I, I welcomed it. I've been working on U.S.-China relations for 36 years, uh, first as a diplomat from many, many angles, and I work at it uh, now from a think tank, from the Wilson Center, but I rarely have the chance in describing U.S.-China relations uh, to use the full vocabulary and the kinds of references with which I truly think about the issue and have thought about the issue since I first went to China in 1987. My expertise is in U.S.-China relations and diplomacy, not in theology, uh, so this is not going to be a 
sermon, uh, but just uh, so that you uh, know, I am a lifelong uh, Roman Catholic, uh, big C.S. Lewis guy, uh, big Bonhoeffer guy, so not, you know, leave the Catholic reservation whenever there's a good reason to, and there often is. Um, but that, that's been my background. That's sort of what I took uh, to China, um, and my family was broadly uh, sort of out of the Catholic worker movement, very much influenced by Dorothy Day, uh, Thomas Merton. That was uh, sort of how I, how I began and what I took to China. So I'd like to begin uh, not with a verse of scripture, but with a verse of uh, the Federalist Papers. James Madison, Federalist 51, a line I hope you all know. What is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. This is really fundamental. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. We are not angels. And that means that when we, all of us, involve ourselves in politics, we are involving ourselves in the social structure of our fallenness. I don't think that that can be avoided. Right? We, that's, what we're, that's what we're doing here uh, because men are not angels. We are involved in the reality of our common imperfection. And therefore, as people involved in policy, we are involved in compromise, in incremental progress, in the pursuit of partial, relative, and temporary, as opposed, in most cases, to absolute goods. Uh, but as people of faith, we are presumably involved in policymaking, not only as a career, uh, but also and primarily as a vocation, right? It's something that we are called to as a way of doing God's work. So it's very understandable that people like those in this room also want America's work, its foreign policies, all of its policies, its China policy, to be good policy with a capital G, not just in the sense of being effective, but also in the moral sense, right? That's a constant drive, constant struggle. But Madison cautions us that it, it won't always be possible. And you just talked about a very long you know, struggle in, in, in your own case. Uh, and it's true, this, this is true of most policies. And of course, as Christians, we, we know this. We know when we think about foreign policy, especially when we think about something as contentious as China, uh, that God does not love individual Americans more than he loves individual Chinese or Greeks or Bolivians. Okay? This is one of the fundamental problems that we have. God does not value American souls over foreign souls, and yet we insist that our leaders value American lives over foreign lives at a ratio of what, one to two, one to five, ten, a hundred, a thousand? I don't know what that ratio is. I do know that that ratio, that equation, is not a moral equation in the religious sense, right? There's simply no way uh, to claim that it is. That, this kind of calculus, asking leaders to value our lives at a ratio of one to whatever over foreign lives, that belongs to this world, to part of our fallenness. And this is where some of the complexity comes in when we think about foreign policy. And of course, not only war, but most foreign policy involves this sort of decidedly worldly, self-interested judgment. We pursue our interests primarily because they are ours, not because they are good. That is the way that our government is structured. Our jobs, not their jobs. Our prosperity first, our food supply, our energy, uh, our profits. 
Okay, this is again a, a, a worldly Madisonian pursuit, and this is what nearly all countries do. Maybe, maybe Bhutan, the little Buddhist kingdom, is an exception to this. I don't know. It's very hard to get into Bhutan. I hope to someday. Um, and within certain bounds, we all accept this difficulty, right? We, we must accept it if we are to persist as nations, and nations are still essential organizing principles for the pursuit of human well-being. So we're caught. I, I, I know I'm belaboring the point, but it's to make begin this by pointing out that we're caught in numerous contradictions when we get involved in policy and foreign policy. So I think that as Americans, the most powerful nation on earth, we have to constantly remind ourselves of the limited moral capability of nations, including our own. Otherwise, we make the mistake uh, of thinking that America's power is an instrument of God's will. We make the mistake of assuming that America's goals and judgments are necessarily gods. And this is one of the things that makes it uh, makes us quite obnoxious to the rest of the world. Of course, at the same time, and this is, you know, I've been struggling with this in China, uh, most of us do believe that the United States, while not consistently or wholly good or uniquely good, I think most of us believe strongly that the United States, at the very least, is relatively good, some of the time, in extremely important ways and in ways that should be preserved and advanced and emulated. I assume that most of us are committed to some version of that, and, and I am too. I believe this, and I believe it these days, especially with reference to China and our looming competition in some respects. Um, and so again, we, we believe that, but as Christians in the most powerful country on earth, we have to approach this belief in American virtue, I would say, with humility. Remember what John Adams said. Power always thinks it has a great soul and vast views beyond the comprehension of the weak and that it is doing God's service when it is violating all of his laws. Okay, this is, this is, this is tricky. Um, we can't wish that away, uh, but awareness of these American tendencies that seem prideful and hypocritical, awareness of that can't prevent us from entering into all international conflicts. Uh, in the irony of American history, if you haven't read it, I recommend you read Reinhold Niebuhr's uh, great book. Niebuhr put it this way. He said, we take, he's writing here as an American and as a theologian and as an expert in foreign policy. Niebuhr said, we take and must continue to take morally hazardous actions to preserve our civilization. We must exercise our power. But we ought neither to believe that a nation is capable of perfect disinterestedness in its exercise, nor become complacent about a particular degree of interest and passion which corrupt the justice by which the exercise of power is legitimized. So a warning from Reinhold Niebuhr. So what does this have to do with China? We are now, in my view, in the view of a growing number of Americans, uh, in a cold war with China. This is a new Cold War. Brings me no pleasure to say that. I'm not prescribing it. I'm not happy about it. This is a description, not a prescription. This new Cold War will likely last most of the rest of most of our lives. Long-term, high stakes. Depressing, distracting, dangerous, and sinfully wasteful if we succeed. If we fail, it's all those things plus highly deadly. Okay? But it is, in fact, a Cold War in which we are competing with China 
to be the single most influential nation. In a highly multilateralized world, no nation can enjoy the kind of influence that America had or imagined it had in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War. But we are competing to have the single biggest share in shaping global security architectures, trading and financial regimes, very importantly, the development, marketization, and regulation of technologies, new and emerging technologies worldwide, but also, very importantly, global systems, global norms and practices, and therefore the values that underlie them. So there's an ideological component to this competition with China as well. And as I say, high stakes characterized by very deep distrust, uh, and of course, both sides uh, are armed to the teeth. Um, so my question for the rest of the talk is, you know, as, as Americans and especially as Christians, how do we frame and pursue a new Cold War? A few, and a few notes that are, that are preliminary thoughts. Uh, this is a relatively new situation. Um, first, of course, we are commanded to approach the other, in this case China, not only with strategy, but with love, with empathy, an honest attempt at understanding the other and what China wants and how it sees itself. We have to begin here. We tend to begin in American foreign policy in the wrong place. What do we want this country to do? That's the wrong first question. The first question is why does this country desire what it desires, believe what it does, and value what it does? based on its own experience. We have to begin with that. Otherwise, we end up in the situation we're in now with China. And sometimes we get in this situation with other individuals. It's absurd. It's sort of the implicit claim that um, you are permitted to judge me only by my intentions as described by me, while I am permitted to judge you by the effects of your actions as felt by me. Right? This is classic human move, national move. It's absurd. It's indefensible. And so you have to begin in an attempt to understand. So, you know, coming to China's point of view and de dealing very quickly in broad strokes, you know, China tends to say, all we're doing is pursuing what is best for China, which is what all nations do. And from China's point of view, this is largely correct, right? China desperately poor until very recently. They have gone, my, my mother-in-law was in Beijing, she turns 90 this year. She was born into truly medieval poverty. The daughter of a rural northern Chinese blacksmith who was born running away from the Japanese invaders. Illiterate. In a single lifetime, they've gone from that to having the biggest middle class in the world, larger than ours. They've come into a, a fully technocratically, internationally integrated society in the course of one generation. Okay, astounding. And like any country, especially a large, ancient, proud, continental country that has a history of being victimized, its propaganda gins that up, but it's a real, it's a genuine history. They're doing what we do. They want to translate their wealth into greater influence. They want to shape the global environment in which they operate. This in itself is not malign. They want to make sure their borders are secured by themselves. And then they want to push their defensive perimeter ever outward, ever outward, until it comprises the whole sphere. Where do you think they learned that trick, right? These are folks who have felt subject to and have been students of American power for a long time, what they call comprehensive national power, including not just military and economic, but discourse power, cultural power, 
normative power, the power to make rules. They've studied this, and China's view is, eh, it seems about right. We kind of like to try that on for size. So on what grounds, given this is what China wants, um, that, that's, and, and what, what any country uh, that it you know, had its capability would want, how do we answer the Chinese question, which is, where is it written that you can enjoy these prerogatives and we can't? It's a perfectly natural, obvious question. Um, how do we go about answering that? Why should we, why, what are we going to say to the world about why it should prefer American influence to China's? So the answer here uh, is the obvious answer. It has to do with the values on which the Chinese government is founded and whether we want those to be spread and legitimized uh, around the world. China is using its wealth to try to legitimize illiberal, illiberal practices and we don't want to live in that world. So it, it really is the fact that freedom is the classic answer and the obvious answer doesn't mean it's, it's the wrong answer. It, it's, it's essential to the formation of conscience and the full development of our humanity. And it's not the business China is in. China has a different proposition to people. But notice that it's also a proposition based on a virtue narrative based on a virtue narrative. Their proposition, it's a lot like Russia's, it's a lot like Iran's, a lot of countries have this proposition, is that human beings are essentially homo economicus, that we can and should be satisfied when our merely material needs are met, and doing that in an anarchic world requires a strong central power or an authoritarian country to provide for your basic needs. Um, so China essentially lops off the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, if you're familiar with that. Um, it, it provides the deficiency needs, the sort of survivalist essential material needs, uh, not so much interested in the self-actualization or the transcendence peak of human desires. It's a survivalist mentality that China puts forward as a justification for tyranny, but benevolent tyranny that allows for a limited kind of human flourishing. And China has, in fact, achieved that on a scale and at a speed never done in human history before, 850 million out of absolute poverty, right? So they, they, this claim is not based on nothing. Um, so that's, that's, China's, that's the Chinese value proposition that we have to deal with. And one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, should the preference for American influence and American values, need that be absolute? Need it be universal? how much additional Chinese influence worldwide can we live with? Because you can't wish them away. There are lots more of them. And this is you know, the law of large numbers. Lester Brown once said 1.4 billion times anything equals a whole hell of a lot. Uh, this is what large numbers do. They've got the biggest middle class, them, not us. That makes them, not us, the tastemakers to the world at the supply and the demand sides. A new reality for us. Uh, and that would be true uh, even if... It, it wasn't uh, a Communist Party dictatorship. Um, so how much Chinese power can we live with? We have to, I think, be reflective and open to change ourselves. And we have to see one final thing from a Chinese point of view. And this is the great irony of American foreign policy. We preach a certain gospel to the world that has to do with free markets uh, and 
liberal democracy, small l, small d, transparency, representative government. And we say, we preach this gospel for essentialist reasons. We say this is the best form of governance because it most fully and accurately reflects our humanity and, and human needs. And then we add as a bonus, it also makes you a lot of money, right, on the sides. So the irony of American foreign policy is if our prescription for human flourishing is correct, and if China adopted it whole hog, they surpass us in every index of power and influence even faster. And how do we feel about that? This is where the Chinese ask reasonably, you say you're about your principles, but you're really about your power. You don't want to be surpassed by anybody. And you, 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 you grasp on the fact that we're led by a communist party, but you just want to be number one. I wish I could look more of my Chinese friends in the eye and tell them with complete conviction that, no, 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 you're wrong about that. It's, it's our principles, not our power. I'm not so sure that's true. They're very aware of the question. So how do we wage this um, Cold War? Just a few quick things. One, we need to be clear about the moral component, about the essential difference between a freer, more liberal, and a vastly less free, less liberal world order. China is moving from authoritarianism to techno-totalitarianism. And it's finding various ways to spread that. And yeah, that's a fight. We know this is something that, that, that we don't want. So we need to be clear about the moral component, but we don't want to over-moralize it, which we almost always do. We use too much normative language about who is good and who is bad. And we have to be very careful about this normative language, especially in the international sphere. I think we use it too much domestically as well because it's easily hijacked by demagogues and absolutists. It tends to blind us to the kind of self-awareness that we should have, to the plank in our own eye uh, when we're lecturing to China. And there are lots of planks in our eyes. It tends to blind us to cultural complexity to the fact that China, again, has its own virtue narrative, to the fact that it's home of one of the world's greatest and most ancient ethical traditions. It's not a religious tradition. China is alone among the ancient great civilizations in that it never had a native doctrine of personal salvation. China never had it. The idea that our job on this earth is to live in such a way that we achieve some kind of transcendence. This idea comes into China only with Buddhism about 200 AD. China never natively had the idea of a personal creator God, some all-powerful being that wills us into existence. That was foreign to China. It's very this-worldly, always has been. It begins with the facts of the everyday, but it does have an ethical tradition that it's articulated upon that. There's no, there's no notion of original sin in China. This was a real stumbling block for the missionaries um, because you, the gospel doesn't make sense without the prior aspects of the Mosaic tradition. You, ha you have to have a fall and the notion of original sin for the gospel to make sense. When a lot of the early missionaries went to China and said you're forgiven for your sins, the answer is, you're a rather grim character. What, what are these sins you speak of? What are you talking about? The Chinese uh, education begins with mankind from his inception is by nature basically good. Confucius and Mencius then teach that education, which is primarily moral education, is then needed to get people to admire and pursue the good. But it experiences itself as an entirely complete, sufficient, 
ethical tradition, and we need to learn, we need to understand it if we're going to have an effective China policy. Um, and then there's the problem we were talking, Bill and I were talking about beforehand, the problem of consistency. You know, when George Kennan wrote about morality in foreign policy, he said, if there is such a thing as morality in foreign, pol in foreign policy, if, then one of its hallmarks must be consistency. We get somewhere between a D minus and an F on consistency. So we have to be careful of this very strong normative language. Preaching internationally rarely works. The, the, the America, with all of its power, adopting the position that we are the good, you are the unenlightened, uh, and therefore you need to listen. Preaching, pre preaching doesn't work. You know, even, even Desmond Tutu of South Africa criticized it. You know, his great line, you know, when, when the missionaries first came to South Africa, they had the Bibles and we had the land. They said, let us pray, and we closed our eyes. When we opened our eyes, we had the Bibles and they had the land. This has been the experience of quite a bit of the rest of the world, and we have to be cognizant of that. And then lastly, this normative language, bad China, um, is extremely dangerous for our Chinese-American and Asian-American brothers and sisters. It has been a spur to an increase in anti-Chinese and anti-Asian-American racial violence over the past several years, uh, and it's likely to remain so. Um, so our diplomacy, I think, realizing this during the Cold War, again, and we need to be strong about what we stand up for, needs to be presented as an invitation to other nations to work together to more fully realize our common human potential. We need to be talking about human problems, not just American virtues. Preaching about American virtues immediately invites an examination of American vices, American failings. How could it possibly be otherwise? And that's a long list, and it tends to be counterproductive. So don't over-moralize. Two, don't over-militarize. It's a Cold War with China. We've done AUKUS. We've strengthened the Quad. We've got the biggest defense budget ever. And now uh, we've also convinced NATO that it has a China-centered, that it has a China aspect to its mission. What does it say about us that the military aspect of this competition is the easiest for us to do despite the fact that it's the most expensive and the most escalatory. Oh, no, 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 we couldn't possibly do a free trade agreement. We couldn't do CPTPP. That's beyond our means. But we can fund a new you know, generation of bombers, right? We couldn't possibly fund more diplomats at the State Department. That doesn't make sense. But we can expand the, the military budget. And I think that as, as Christians in the policymaking community, we've got a special uh, obligation to ask these questions. And I'm not saying that AUKUS or the Quad or any of these are wrong themselves. It's a question of balance and proportionality. They're not matched by efforts on the economic side, on the provision of public goods, and on the diplomacy side. The military-industrial complex is alive and well. Remember Dwight Eisenhower, his Cross of Iron speech. Eisenhower himself said that every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired, signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. We're heading for a resurrection of mutually assured destruction, which some of us grew up in. I remember first grade duck and cover drills, if you may, others of you may. Mutual assured destruction is coming. Um, we have to ask, is it fundamental, is it moral to build machines designed to destroy humanity and all the world and threaten people with the use of them, never intending to, hoping not to, while not taking care of a lot of the problems we face domestically and internationally. Who is going to ask that question? I'm not saying there's a clear answer. It's a complicated discussion. This is not a slam dunk. 
but the question isn't being asked. We are galloping toward a return to doctrines like mutually assured destruction without asking these difficult questions. Our prosecution of, of this Cold War must also be humanistic. Uh, and what I mean by that is there's a key question. We don't want China to be the, the primary shaper of global order. China bases its claim to be able to do that on its own development. So you have to ask the question, do we kneecap China's development? Right? Can we kneecap China's development? You know, the, 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 the Communist Party probably comes down if you have high unemployment concurrent with high inflation and a collapse in the housing market. Okay, that's interesting. People in Washington are asking whether maybe we do something about that. But there's a question that we in this room, you know, have to ask. Um, is it permissible in a, in a Cold War, a struggle short of armed conflict, to deliberately harm the well-being of one-fifth of humankind? That's what those policies mean. Policies to slow China's growth, to spur domestic unrest, to perhaps erode or collapse the Communist Party involve our deliberately harming the welfare of one-fifth of humankind. Are we down for that? Again, and that's, I don't mean to ask that as though the answer is immediately obvious, but I hope the question is obvious. I hope it has to be asked, I hope it will be asked. Um, so we, we need that. Um, there's a Catholic doctrine of just war that was developed by Augustine and Aquinas. It's a contested doctrine, Francis rejects it. But there is no doctrine as yet about what a just cold war would look like. And maybe we should work on building one. That's not a bad thing to have you know, a working group or a discussion group look at. There's no just cold war doctrine. I think we might need one. You know, a just war in, in, the, in the standing doctrine has to satisfy six conditions. It must be for a just cause, note subjectivity. It must be lawfully declared by a lawful authority. The intention behind the war must be good. Not just that our goal is good, but the heart with which it is pursued must also be a moral or a good one. Again, note creeping subjectivity. All other means of resolving the problem should be tried first. Have we done that with China? There must be a reasonable chance of success. And the means used must be in proportion to the end sought. So this question of proportionality has another aspect. Um, to go back to Eisenhower's warning about basically guns and butter. If we pour too many of our resources into competition with China, what priorities are we going to neglect domestically where that money could go? And what priorities are we going to neglect internationally? But one of the things that characterizes this era is that we face all, a number of concurrent epical changes that really fundamentally change the way we think. China's one of them. I believe that China is our greatest geostrategic challenge. But in this era, is our greatest geostrategic challenge the greatest challenge that we face overall? Global warming, loss of biodiversity, globalization of supply chains, of pathogens, of information and ideas, of refugees, globalizations of the negative impacts of the rich-poor disparity, right? Um, the emergence of new technologies that we don't understand. All of these things require our attention both as a policy and as a moral matter. If we, spend, if we put this all into mutual assured, assured destruction with China, uh, what are the opportunity costs? Um, and then lastly, I think, um, and again, as Christians involved in these very complicated questions, we have to act in fellowship with other nations. 
in fellowship with other nations. We should attend to their judgments, including their moral judgments and including their judgments of us. So I will close with one Federalist 63, Madison again, on this very important question of other countries. He wrote, an attention to the judgment of other nations is important to every government for two reasons. The one is that independently of the merits of any particular plan or measure, it is desirable on various accounts that it should appear to other nations, meaning our policy, as the offspring of a wise and honorable policy. The second is that in doubtful cases, particularly where the national councils may be warped, meaning our politics, where our politics may be warped by some strong passion or momentary interest, the presumed or known opinion of the impartial world may be the best guide that can be followed. What has not America lost by her want of character with foreign nations? And how many errors and follies would she not have avoided if the justice and propriety of her measures had in every instance been previously tried by the light in which they would probably appear to the unbiased part of mankind? A growing number of countries in the world share our concerns about China. Not, not because of our diplomacy, but because of China's actions and what China does and the supreme self-regard with which it acts. But other nations that are willing to work with us in some ways about China don't share our moral absolutism or our strong binary framing of US-China relations. And I think that it would behoove us to be sensitive to that and also to be sensitive to the fact that China is still changing. The story of modern China is a story of change on a scale and at a speed unprecedented in human history. It's not written. It's not a monolith moving in one direction. And of course, we are changing as well. We likewise are fragile. We likewise are challenged. And I don't think that we can help China correct its steps unless we find our own stride. I'll stop there. Thanks. Robert Daly, thank you so much for taking the time to join me at last on Seneca. I have waited a long time to finally get you on the show. Well, it's, it's good to be with you, Kaiser. I have been uh, listening, and I know we've talked about doing this, and I'm very glad that we finally found the time. Indeed, indeed. Oh. And I'm really glad that I was able to, to uh, do this around this talk of yours, which sure. just really floored me. Uh, Robert, you are one of the OG members of what we call the League of the Famers, people who are much better known in China than in the States, along with folks like Mark Rosewell or David Moser or Elise Anderson and Elise Ribbons. Uh, but here in the States, you know, within the field, you are well-known and well-regarded for your years of service in the State Department, for your skills as an interpreter, and, of course, for your leadership of the Wilson Center's uh, Kissinger Institute. But in China, everyone knows you for your role in one of the great classic uh, Chinese TV shows of the 1990s, uh, A Beijinger in New York, which, along with you know, Benji Bu the Gusher and, and the sitcom Wai Wajia, definitely ranks among the most beloved Chinese television shows from, from that golden era. I, I suppose there are some similarities to my own stint in China as a rock musician in a well-known band. And since I get asked all the time about, you know, how that relates to what I've done since, I thought I'd seize this chance to, to, to ask you that question about your TV career and about what exposure to China's world of, of the arts, of entertainment, and the humanities has done for you. Well, there's a big difference between your fame in heavy metal and my fame on soap operas, which is that you <laughs> actually are a musician. 
and got up on the stage with some skill and preparation. Whereas anyone who has seen Beijing and Zayuya will know I, I am in no wise an actor. Uh, I wasn't even the original uh, cast member for that part. It was actually supposed to be played by a, a very famous Shanghai actor named Chen Daoming. And he had put, I don't know, two or three weeks of intense filming in the can. And he got into a big argument with Feng Xiaogang and Zheng Xiaolong, two directors who were big then and subsequently became superstars. And, and, and Chen Daoming wanted changes in the script. And they said no. And so he left. He just picked up and, and left the whole project, leaving them with useless footage. And it was actually Jiang Wen, who's a, a very good friend of mine, the, the uh, actor-director, who said, well, you know, we're in America. I know an American guy up in Ithaca who can speak Chinese. Why don't we just bring him in? And so this all happened very suddenly, uh, sans preparation, sans any skill on my part. So as you say, Beijing Inside Yue became big, but no thanks to me. You know, it was Jiang Wen's acting. It was Wang Ji. It was, it was Liu Huan's music which was a huge part of this thing and a huge part of its popularity. So I, I felt very much along for the ride. You've just named some of my very favorite people. I mean, Zhang Wen is also my favorite actor. I mean, and Chen Daoming, who would have had your part. I love that guy. I mean, he played Cao Cao in one of the uh, reproductions. Yes. And Chen Daoming was actually my father-in-law's roommate for a while. They were both actors. He's a marvelous actor. And oh, actually, yeah. The issue was that his wife, who was a famous news presenter, was supposed to play the number two female lead and he asked, he said that the script really wasn't fair to her. I think he was correct. And he asked them to change it and they wouldn't, they wouldn't do it. So both of them left. So oh, they wow. grabbed Yen Xiaoqin and me. We were both brought in on the spur of the moment uh, to play those roles. I, I don't think Chen Daoming's analysis was wrong, but this was also the first time that the Bank of China had made a U.S. dollar loan to a Chinese filming crew to go overseas. So it was it was a big deal in that way. And they had what in today's terms are, is no budget. So Chen Daoming actually wasted a lot of their time as, as well as money. It worked out well for Yen Xiaoping and in a way it, it worked out well for me, uh, but it wasn't their idea to have me in in the first place. That backstory aside though, I, I did ask you about, you know, what this has actually done for your future career because I, I think, I suspect there probably is some linkage. Well, there, there are some. It, it's been a very, very good icebreaker in that almost uh, all of the Chinese leaders and most of the people in China who are age, well, at this point, 45 and above, uh, watched it. They've seen it. So right. when I come in the room, you know, they feel like they know me and they feel like they're over a hump and there's something to talk about and I can speak Chinese. So it's been a very good icebreaker that way. In the long term, I think that uh, the biggest benefit for me was actually working in a Chinese Danwei. Right. Subject to Chinese authority every day. This is very different than the way I started in China, which was, you know, working in the American embassy, looking at China sort of as as studied object rather than as lived subject. But when your subject when you know when your boss is Chinese, and you've had this experience too, when you're subject daily to Chinese authority and you're working in a Chinese work culture, it sort of rocks your world and it gives you, I think, insights into China that you wouldn't otherwise have. Absolutely. One of the other bosses that you've had was also born in China, but is not himself Chinese, Stapleton Roy, Jay Stapleton Roy, uh, Stape, who left you to fill very, very big shoes at the Wilson Center at the Kissinger Institute. Can you talk about what it's been like to work with him over the years, what role he's played in shaping your own views about the United States and China and their fraught relationship? 
Sure. I, I should acknowledge that I had another Chinese-born boss, which is Jim Lilly, uh, when I was at the uh, embassy be, right, before right, right. But, you know, with Stape founded the Kissinger Institute, and then through a, a process that was opaque to me and lasted a year, I came in as his successor. Fortunately, he then stayed on as a distinguished fellow for another eight years. And what this meant for me was that, you know, unlooked for and undeserved, I suddenly had a daily masterclass uh, from Stape. And the subject of that masterclass was not only China and US-China relations, but it was also diplomacy as such, what diplomacy meant, what it what it could and should be. And Stape uh, often lamenting that it no longer seems to play as big a role uh, in our approach to China. And what, what Stape taught me, with, well, it was something that I in part knew, but I hadn't articulated it. I hadn't quite known how important it was, is that when you look at China, you don't begin by asking, you know, what's wrong with them or what do we want them to do, which is where we usually start with American foreign policy. You begin by asking who they are, what they've been through, why they believe what they believe, whether you agree with them or not, where this comes from. You study their history, you study the language, and then you start to think about how to speak with them and how to find common ground if you can. And this was his constant text. And his illustrative examples came from you know, the entire history of the modern relationship. And they actually went back to the pre-modern side, you know, his, his birth in Nanjing, his fleeing Nanjing ahead of the rape of Nanking in 1997. 1937, right. Then uh, having a lot of elementary schooling in uh, Chengdu, uh, he met John Layton Stewart. You know, later on, he went to the Shanghai American School, and so as I say, it was a, it was a a master class in middle age, which most people don't get. Yeah, I'd had a number of very influential mentors. I hate that word, but a number of scholars who were important to me when I was in college, uh, especially Raymond Carver and Toby Wolf. I, I wrote mm -hmm. short stories under guidance, and they had been major figures in my development. And then suddenly, boom, say at age fifty one. Stape Roy. And so I think that it, it helped deepen my own commitment to approaching China from a historical, cultural point of view and from always trying to include, insofar as we can, the Chinese point of view. And sometimes it still remains a little bit opaque and muddled to me, but you at least begin there. Right, right. I think he's, he's a paragon of the exercise of cognitive empathy. Uh, just a marvelous man. Well, I would, I would say more nice things about him, but I'm afraid that somebody might actually share this recording with him and he would be appalled if we were too lavish in our praise. <laughs> okay, well then uh, I'll ask you, you know, maybe to channel him uh, before we move on. How was he feeling about the state of the bilateral relationship? Um, how has he been feeling about that for the last couple of years? And, and how did he apportion... Uh, this is a crude way of putting it, but apportioned blame. I mean, I've always found him to be one of the American diplomats who can really turn the lens on ourselves and our behavior and speak very candidly about what we might have done to to cause some of the behavior that we now object to so strenuously. Right. And, and it's that ability that sometimes of states uh, that makes it hard to know how he apportions blame. I think that blame is a word that he he probably wouldn't want to use. Right. And I wouldn't uh, you know, want to speak for Stape who can speak for himself. But you're right that he has certainly been, I think it's fair to say, appalled by an American rhetorical approach to China that was devoid of 
any introspection or knowledge of our own history and the history of the relationship. You know, the fact that we often proceed in a, in a very moralistic preaching way, despite, you know, both our, our past and, and our ongoing sins, I think is, is an embarrassment to him. And I think it's also fairly safe to say that he has been very concerned by a loss of historical knowledge about the foundations of and the rationale for the relationship. In particular, we be began to see, you know, with the Trump administration, this narrative that engagement was always a sucker's game and a massive mistake and that we got played. And within this narrative, you have this assumption that our goals under engagement had always been to make China more like us. Right. And in fact, one, we didn't call it engagement at the time. We only called it U.S.-China relations. We only started to use engagement to, to describe that period after that period had ended. And two, as is, as is very clear from the historical record, back during the Carter administration, when the relationship was founded, nobody was saying, this is going to make China more like us. It is true that later on, uh, Bill Clinton and others uh, sometimes said that they thought that was likely to happen. But it was never a driver of policy. Mm. Uh, and so that narrative, that really twisting of the historical record with engagement by you know, sort of the emergent hawkish group that now has the megaphone on U.S.-China relations. Uh, I don't think that the, that the Biden administration itself buys into this ahistorical version of engagement. I can't tell that they have much interest in that argument one way or the other. But certainly on the hawkish side, engagement is seen as this hopeful kind of airy-fairy, limp-wristed, hippie optimism, which has now been trampled into the dust by you know Xi Jinping's China. Right, right, right. And that's just false. And certainly Stape was one of the people who, who was continually making that case over the past several years. Several of the themes that you brought, brought up in, in talking about Stape's thinking of in recent years really lead us directly into the talk that, that we're going to focus on for the rest of, of our hour here. Our listeners have just taken that in. Before we get to the actual substance of it, though, tell me why it is that these days, these ideas of yours, which have clearly been gestating for a very, very long time, could only find expression, at least where you are in, in D.C., in a forum like Faith and Law. Why did you need to give that talk there? Well, yeah, that's that's actually, that's a very good question. And, and just to be clear, I mean, nothing that I said in that talk, from my point of view, is either new or surprising. It just isn't very often said mm -hmm. in the mainstream uh, dialogue about our, our policies in China. And my view on this is maybe a little bit idiosyncratic, but one, as is often remarked, uh, concerns about what we call our security now dominate all discussion about China. And also that discussion about China is carried out by people who are, I think for the most part, well-meaning, you know, patriotic, doing what they think is best for the country, but whose educational background, and I'm getting into tricky territory here, but is primarily in political science or IR theory. Right. Or they come out of some version of you know, the military industrial complex uh, and, and have lenses of that kind. But it's largely that, you know, you have this only poli-sci and IR 
lens on the relationship. And those lenses, those disciplines, have a limited aperture and a limited vocabulary. And you and I have spoken about this before. The, the, pros, you know, the proposition in Washington now is that China is a security threat to the United States, full stop. Right. Um, yeah. The approach I try to take is that China is a complicated human proposition under any circumstances, an increasingly worrisome aspect of which is a security threat. But it's the broad lens, it's, it's the humanistic lens uh, that needs to be the, the frame for this relationship. But that is you know, largely a foreign idea to you know, the realist school of foreign policy. Which says that the you know the basic actors are power maximizing uh, nation states. That's right, and that's where everything is reducible to. And I, I don't understand that. It's not just that I reject it. I just I don't understand how that view came about. To me, international affairs can only be understood. They're only coherent as a subset of human affairs. And so, a cultural lens. Uh, a moral lens, a historical lens, a humanistic lens have to be employed. And we do employ them in, in universities and in, in disciplines and departments all over America. But within Washington, uh, that vocabulary, those, those tools, those ways of understanding are, are not very often employed. And this is not, I don't mean to be criticizing my many colleagues, you know, in the in the China field, uh, whatever that's supposed to mean. I'm, I'm very lucky to work with the many very dedicated, thoughtful people that I work with in other think tanks. I learn a lot from them um, and they have my highest respect. But I, I have found in Washington that there's just a, a limited, inadequate aperture. And that was true even before everything became dominated by concerns about security. Right, right. Yeah, I, I suspect you could have done a secular version of this talk. In fact, many of the people who you quote and, and you pepper this with fantastic quotes are from that kind of secular pantheon of, of America's founding heroes. There are, um, you know, quotes from Madison in the Federalist Papers, as you've all just heard, from Dwight D. Eisenhower later on. Uh, but the one that I think really anchors the talk is from this letter that John Adams wrote to Thomas Jefferson in February of 1816, where he says, Power always sincerely, conscientiously, and de très bonne foi, in good faith, believes itself right. Power always thinks it has a great soul and vast views beyond the comprehension of the weak, and that it is doing God's service when it's violating all his laws. That's the crux of it, it seems. That's, that's the fundamental issue that you're wrestling with in this talk. When it comes to China, what has happened in our relationship to cause you to really question whether our policy, which we inevitably think is good, capital G, good, is actually good. What, what triggers this in you? Well, I think primarily it is a willingness to put preparation for war first and foremost. Right. I think that's what, what really shocks me about this. And as you said, that there's a, there's a secular version of that talk that could easily be given. Uh, I wasn't quoting scripture. I was upfront about some, you know, some of my influences from from Catholic and, and Christian thinkers. But it, it, there could be a a secular version of that. And and we have moved very quickly to arming up and to consideration of war 
merely as a question of our security. And so I think back on you know all the things I've done you know in, in China in 33 years and the people I've met and you you've been part of all of this right anybody who's traveled there most of the Americans that I know who've traveled there even including some more hawkish people who've actually been able to walk around the streets and meet Chinese they come away impressed in the main right it doesn't right. mean they're not concerned about the South China Sea or Taiwan you you retain those and so I'm worried that we hear China is our pacing threat. Do we need to reconsider our nuclear doctrines now that we have a triangular arms race with Russia and China? And so we're sort of rushing to update mutual assured destruction and the other nuclear doctrines that we developed together with the Soviets after the Cuban Missile Crisis in the first Cold War. And I think that we, we may need to do that. There's an argument for doing all of those things. But it hasn't been matched by what we had during the first Cold War, which was a lot of people saying, wait, just a cotton pick in minute. Do we want to be designing these and building these weapons and having them you know, on a hair trigger ready to be deployed, which can control the world several times over? Right. Um, you know, do we really want to, you know, to kill all these people? Does this make sense? Now, this is I'm, I'm alluding in a, in a very shallow way to a very, very complicated dialogue, you know, historical dialogue. And what I'm worried about is in Washington now to even raise these questions is seen, as far as I can tell, as, as again, as a sort of a passe, uh, hippie-ish, <laughs> irrelevant, so, almost irrelevant set of concerns. And that that's what bothers me. Well, one of the most powerful moments, I think, in the talk was, I mean, just along these lines, it's when you asked, what does it say about us? that the military aspect of this competition is the easiest for us, despite the fact that it's the most expensive and the most escalatory. So what does it say about us? I, when, when you have said this, as I hope you have, as I'm sure you have, have yeah. to our more hawkish friends, you know, there in D.C., what is their response? I mean, do they not see that our, all, you know, that there's this guns and butter trade-off, that we're not training up a new core of diplomats, that we're not, we're not, we're not, that, that our, our, our first move is always the military one. Why? So, so the primary, again, the, well, first, this often isn't questioned because the situation is presented as urgent, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, but it's, it's, we, have a, we have a pacing threat. And then I also hear from people, and I think this is true, and I think they're well-intentioned, is that, yeah, 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 we know all about that. We've thought about that, um, but we're now at a point where knowing that we've gamed it out and we have to make certain moves. And you know, my response to that is, well, if if you think about it so always, why do you mention it so never? Right? right? Why why is it not in the public discourse and even in sort of mainstream papers, we read about, you know, rearmament or the reemergence of MAD, and it's presented to us merely as a series of facts and statistics. And we do, again, there, we don't have the voices that we had during the first Cold War, which say, is it is it is it moral to create weapons to threaten to use them? Um, you you can give a strategic reason for that, but we're in a position, perhaps. Let's say that let's say that it's correct uh, that we have to have nuclear weapons, and all of us, you and I, most of the people listening to this, were born into a world in which they already existed. So the question of whether to develop them is gone. We still need a dialogue in which we say, having these things may be a strategic necessity, 
but it's a moral tragedy. And we need to frame it that way. And the tendency in the United States, because of our own moral absolutism and self, self-regard and self-certainty, which I talked about in that, in that uh, speech as well, um, we tend to say, okay, well, if these, are, if these are a strategic necessity, therefore, they're also a moral good because we're doing it. Right. And I think that what we need is a discourse that says they may be a strategic necessity. We need to continually revisit that. But they're still a moral tragedy, and we need to keep that first and foremost as well, or we're simply going to have the wrong guides to the development and use of these. So part of what I was trying to do was simply introduce, reintroduce that element into the discussion uh, so far, I, I haven't really seen any echoes well, of that. We will come back to the embryonic uh, form of Robert Daly's doctrine of a just Cold War and talk about things like, uh, you know, kneecapping China and its technology, which you, which you do talk about. Um, but let's let's go back. I, I want to understand better sort of your your own foreign policy doctrine as you've come to to develop it, because it, it sits somewhere. It, it, it obviously it's. As you as you point out, we can't allow our, our our ability to you know to exercise empathy to completely paralyze us. I mean, I I actually do find myself being able to turn the chessboard around and see things from the other side, and I can play myself kind of to a stalemate where I sometimes feel like, right. am I actually in danger of of losing a moral compass here? Am I am I so reluctant to judge and to act now? Because of this commitment to exercising empathy, that I'm I'm ineffective, and so you 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 wrestle with this as well. Yours is a very different calculus, obviously, from the so-called IR realists. We've just talked about them. You know, these people who uh, would silence our conscience entirely and act only according to our national self-interest. But it's also very different from the so-called liberal interventionists, who are you know very eager to use American power, even lethal American power, in the service of what they see as as good. So. I know it's it's a huge question, but how do you come to your policy preferences? I mean, do you have some kind of a rule of thumb, a kind of test, or do you just trust to intuition? I mean, is this when you have to turn to the Almighty? <laughs> well, yeah, it's 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 more the latter. I don't think I have a doctrine, but I, I have certain dispositions. And you know, to answer these huge questions, you 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 do need whether it's a personal philosophy or an ethics or a religion. Different people come at it equally effectively from, from different angles. But one of the things that we have to keep track of, and it, it's odd to me that a lot of uh, the most hawkish rhetoric that we hear from you know, American, mostly people on the Hill, but you hear it from other places, also comes from people who are very, very publicly and emphatically committed Christians. Right. Right. And so that that's actually, this is a little bit of a sidebar. This isn't at the mainstream of American diplomacy, but I think it's worth noting. And obviously, if you're, if you really are coming at this from that as a committed Christian or a committed Jew or a Muslim or even an ethical atheist for that matter, as you said, this, there's a secular version of this talk. The Chinese are first and foremost our neighbors, right? And the Christian doctrine here couldn't be clearer. Right. You know that 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 you that you are to love your neighbor, and that doesn't mean that if your neighbor is beating his children, you don't call the cops. Yeah, you 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 do. Um, and if your you know neighbor is building his garage on your property, uh, you may take him to court or knock down his garage with a sledgehammer. Right? 
too transparent metaphors just now. But. Right. So, so it's just that is the piece that seems to be missing uh, from this. But again, it's it's not that I'm guided. I don't have a a doctrine to this. I'm just constantly aware of what is missing in our rhetoric. And I guess part of it too is because you know, all this time in China, uh, while there are very real problems in China, we have a real, you know, there are challenges. And I think what can legitimately be called threats coming out of China, there is also a tremendous amount uh, to admire and love there. And that's a sort of, a, that's a daily lived reality for many Americans, certainly Chinese Americans, but not only Chinese Americans. And so that needs to be continually brought into the discussion somehow. And the difficulty I've had in Washington is, is finding that bridge. Uh, how, how do you bring, make that kind of vocabulary relevant to the security vocabulary? And I frankly haven't found a very good way to do that. I've, I've, I've failed in that. As soon as you make these points, you're taking yourself out of the ballgame. Hmm. Uh, and this is an ongoing... It's an ongoing frustration. I, I, I don't. I don't know how to quite know how to come at it. Yeah. So the whole interplay between religion and foreign policy is a, a, a huge topic. I mean, we could explore that for hours, but it's it's probably too much to tackle in the time that we have. But I do want to ask you a couple of things about U.S. policy, about Christianity, and, and China. Uh, how much does Christianity affect the conduct of American policy? When it comes to China, how much does it shape American public attitudes toward China? Because I think back to, you know, coming up and reading, you know, John King Fairbank, for example, he has this book called China Watch, uh, where he wrote about cowboy and, and missionary attitudes and, and the special relationship with China. I, I know, you know, we, there was a long tradition of missionary activity, you know, uh, as we, we mentioned, State Roy was born. The, the, missionary education of missionary parents. Yeah. That's right, 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 right. You know, John Pomfret, uh, with whom I have many, many, many disagreements, but he did write something very wise in this book, uh, The Beautiful Country in the Middle Kingdom, where he talked about this special relationship, the same one that, you know, Fairbank wrote about. And he, he talked about how there's this dynamic that constantly plays out whereby we saddle China with these unrealistically high expectations that, you know, being unrealistically high are invariably dashed they're never met right and and this right. causes us us americans then we it causes us to to react like jilted lovers i think was exactly the phrase that he used you know, we were irrationally angry at china because because we care so much i think the whole you know engagement of has failed that that whole thing it smacks of of the same the same kind of psychology there does seem to be a kind of missionary attitude at the heart of this. I'm curious what your thoughts are about this. And and is it explicitly or is it directly Christian or is it something more? I don't think it's, I don't think it's, you know, we, we've changed our gospels. They've been Christian. They've been capitalist. They've been neoliberal. But there's always a gospel. But there's always a gospel, right? right. Uh, and we're always preaching it. And, you know, if we ask what Christianity means, the first question is who's Christianity? Sure. Uh, and that becomes, you know, an impossibly complicated conversation. Certainly, a, a lot of uh, mainstream Christianity now is influenced by what's called the prosperity gospel, Christ. Uh, which is that. Well, you mentioned Christ. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Christ does not mention uh, the prosperity gospel. Uh, wealth, it's quite clear, is not a sign 
of God's favor. You know, my, my reading of the New Testament is, you know, that the more closely your behavior and, and beliefs uh, accords with that of Christ, the higher the likelihood that they nail you to a tree. That's that's the way that those stories go. But the prosperity You, you haven't gospel, quoted scripture so far, but I think I will. I mean, I, there's isn't it more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle? Well, there's actually a huge debate about the actual meaning. Right, eye of the of, needle being actually a gate in Jerusalem or something like that. Yeah, but that's now recently been possibly discredited. It's we don't know, but there's okay, this well, is why it's, it's who's Christianity. We'll leave the theology for another. I think that what we need to do in our public diplomacy and our outreach to China uh, is use China's own ancient, vast, and I would say perfectly adequate ethical traditions. Um, you know, we should be arguing for, from the point of view of what is best and most valued in, in the Chinese ancient tradition, not not in the name of our tradition. And, and there we've got, I think, a tremendous amount to work with. We have to educate ourselves to it a little better. And that should be a part of our, our approach to China rather than proceeding from, you know, the many, many moral traditions in the West, Christianity being one of them. I think that we need to, you know, coming back to Stape Roy. We need to know their literature, their ideas, where their ideas of the good and human flourishing come from. I'm not talking here about the Chinese Communist Party. I'm talking about older traditions. Uh, and we, we, there's plenty to work with you know, within that framework. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to come back to that in just a bit. You know, Somebody once compared American and Chinese forms of exceptionalism to me. He, he suggested both countries obviously have it, they both suffer from it in, in no small measure. I mean, they both feel very much singled out by history for some special destiny, right? Uh, but the way that they manifest exceptionalism is very different. I, I, I completely agree here. American exceptionalism supposes that our values, and our institutions uh, are, are true for all peoples in all times. And this leads us inevitably to proselytize, right? And you, know, you right. said we always have a gospel, right? Chinese exceptionalism, though, is 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 very particularist rather than universal. That and you know here I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but Chinese exceptionalism says that China's values and institutions are the unique product of a very specific historical experience. It's special, you know, like the same way that its language is special. It's hard to acquire. You might as well not even bother. <laughs> um, you know, and and you know, while Chinese virtue and beneficence can kind of radiate outward. No Chinese people really think that the rest of the world either can or ought to be sort of reshaped in China's image, right? Um, right. Now, again, oversimplified, but I think there's some truth to it. And I, I think part of this American exceptionalism has to be located, I think, in the, you know, the, the distinctly uh, religious roots of this country, especially in, in the dissenting sects of Protestantism that, that came over, yep. you know, in, in after 1620, right? And founded New England. Absolutely. And what, you know, the, the Chinese version of exceptionalism, which you just described, I think, very accurately. Of course, this becomes a very real problem conceptually and, and in a utilitarian sense now that China wants to be an order builder outside of China. Right. And it is doing right. that in a way that is also highly moralistic. If you look at, you know, community of common destiny and, and the global development, uh, security, and especially the civilization initiatives. Right. And they're tying themselves in knots to say, you know, we reject universal values, but there are common values. 
Uh, and they're they're struggling with precisely this idea of exceptionalism now that they're interested in being something like a global leader or order builder. Our version of, as you say, largely Protestant evangelization, whatever um, its problems may be, there's no conceptual difficulty when you try to then order the world or tell the world what the right way to human flourishing is. We don't we don't deal with that. We sometimes don't have enough introspection, but it lends itself to order building. Whereas China, as you say, it's it's because of the particularism, the very Chineseness of it. You know, the religion of China is China itself, certain beliefs about China, its culture, its history, its experience. And that just doesn't translate. And so it, it's interesting to watch them try to deal with this puzzle that they've laid out for themselves now. That is a very interesting way to look at it. And I, I think, yeah, that's fodder for a conversation that I'm going to have at the next China conference. It's, you've just seeded a, a terrific question in my head for that. Um, thank you. That's that's fantastic. Look, you know, it, it's not just the U.S. that is guilty of the overuse of moral language, which you warn, warn against, of normative language. This is something that China also very much does. The The tone is different. It's it's certainly more defensive. It's more aggrieved. Uh, can you talk about this, the pernicious nature of over-moralizing by both countries? Well, I think it's a little bit different uh, in both cases. You know, our moral language tends, it's not so much that it's, that we moralize, but I think that that's inevitable. You know, human beings are, are moralizing critters, right? So sure. when we talk about things that matter, there's always going to be a moral component. You can't just rip it away and go for something that's purely mechanistic. I think you're even more prone to make major mistakes under those circumstances. It's our moral absolutism. It's, it's, it's really that tendency. And I don't mean moral absolutism as opposed to, you know, what, what is often criticized as moral relativism. I mean, it's, it's, it's our tendency to say, you know, that, uh, you know, China can't be merely problematic or we can't think that this, that, or the other behavior is bad or concerning. Uh, they have to be devils from hell. Right. Right. Um, right. Every pickpocket has to be a serial killer. And they're not. Not every pickpocket is a serial killer. And so we lose track of all perspective. And then we have a tendency, because I think of a certain you know, evangelical uh, strain uh, in American, mostly Protestant Christianity, although you find it in Catholicism as well, um, that all problems are framed in terms of Armageddon. And we do this <laughs> domestically. We do this domestically. You know, your political opponents have to be evil. They have to be un-American. Uh, we, we, we wish ill upon them. We don't just do this to China. We do this to ourselves, to our very great detriment. And so I see it as that apocalyptic strain of primarily Protestant Christianity and the way that it now has, has seeped into a lot of our culture. And it actually gets boosted. This is, this is I'll go out on a little bit of, of a limb here. I can't, I can't prove it. But it's also been boosted up by a kind of uh, aggressively vulgar strain in U.S. culture, sort of the South Parkization hmm. of everything. All things are sayable and doable and in your face. I actually think that our that you know, aggressively missionary view gets a, a, a cultural boost from that side of things as well. I hear that strain when I listen to it. I hear it in our former president, who I think is in part enabled by a mass culture, which is nihilistic, 
which reveres nothing, in which everything is permitted, and the permitting of everything is heavily rewarded. I think that that is also a major engine of this style. It's not just the you know the apocalyptic Christianity that enters into this. Yeah, on the on the Chinese side, it's it's very different, and I think it's different in part because they're developing this language in part as in response to what we have said and done. Mm, yeah. Uh, they're, 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 part of this is is in the DNA, and part of it is counterpunching in a way that they're not necessarily accustomed to counterpunching, which is why so much of their uh, rhetoric and their arguments, such as they are along these lines, are, are, are so easy uh, to deconstruct in, in some ways. Um, because the, the, the Chinese self-certainty and profound cultural self-regard that predates the Communist Party is not aggressive or missionary in its original style. And so I see China now trying to you know, adapt that and figure out how to use that in a way that's coherent to a domestic audience uh, as well as to an international audience. And they're so far mostly failing. Yeah, it's clumsy, it's ham-fisted. It's clumsy. It's, yeah, yeah. The, the one thing I think that is, is less clumsy and that is working now that I think they stumbled on after a lot of false attempts, is China's put forward this proposition that the very goal of global order, what is called order, is development. And that has a lot of bias, right? And when we describe the international rules-based order, and we'd have to do another show on the issues with that proposition and that, that phrase, we don't describe it as being about development in the first instance, right? We say that it's the most conducive framework to human flourishing, so that sort of comes as a side effect. But as we present it, the rationale for it is more legalistic than it is development itself. And so I think that China has sort of bumbled its way into something that is actually going to work for it, at least in parts of the global south. And so I see China, in a, it's a long period of transition in which they're trying to figure out how to be a great power in many ways, how to translate wealth into influence. They're, they're, they're not doing very well. But the effort is lavishly resourced and it's 24-7. And they're beginning to de develop arguments that work a little bit better in some parts of the world. Yeah, that's actually yeah. something that I would I would push back a little bit on how you described it in your talk. Uh, you, you talk about how China's leadership sees humans as homo economicus, as mm. the Russians did. Uh, you, they lop off the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs of that pyramid, right? The, you know, self-actualization. Right. Well, I mean, I, I would say, yeah, that's true to a point. But, you know, just as you said, you know, this this is is intended to appeal to the global south, which by definition is at an earlier stage of development. And, Correct. you know, my understanding of, of how the Chinese talk about it is, look, they, 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 they do want all that, you know, the spiritual stuff like that, but they just feel like they are further down the hierarchy right now. That their priority right now are you know the subsistence things, the food, clothing, shelter. Um, you know they they are now reaching for a xiaokangshuhui, you know a modestly well-off society. Uh, but I mean, I think down the road they, they, the, the the Chinese virtue narrative isn't devoid of a kind of spiritual component. It's well, except that of course, what what is meant by spiritual is extremely unclear, sure, as sure, it is sure. in the case of. of you know, when holy secular Westerners use spiritual, I don't really know what they're talking about either. Uh, so there's there's a problem with the use of that term. But the Chinese, the way they speak about this has changed so that in the 80s and the 90s, 
the Communist Party discourse said that we are, you know, ultimately we're moving towards something like democracy, but the time is not yet now, right? We're, we're, we're developing. We still have to have what's essentially a survivalist ethic. Right. So, but that even the notion that democracy was a goal that dropped out of Communist Party discourse a while ago. Then the other difficulty is, of course, that China is not just a survivalist place anymore. It's right. not true. We don't have a good word for what it is because you've got the world's biggest consumer class, but you've also got 600 million people living below the poverty line. Uh, and so what do, we, what do we call this? How do we frame that is a very good question. But the notion that China can still get away with a purely survivalist ethic simply doesn't cut it, especially now when they are reaching for some form of global leadership, some form of order building, claiming to offer you know, advice or answers not only to the global south, but, but to, the, to the world as a whole. They play both sides of this issue. And you know, I, you know, listeners, most of the listeners to Seneca podcast know that China is not just Beijing and Shanghai and Shenzhen. They've been all over the country and they've met the poor. Uh, but some of the poor become rich fairly fast. And again, just the fact, the question of this being merely a survivalist state in which there is no higher moral good than the people not starving. Mm. Um, that passed the sell-by date several decades yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah and this I is where China is right now. It's it's in that state right now where uh, the, the kind of great Levinson question of modern Chinese history, how do we create wealth and power in a way that's sort of consonant with our identity as Chinese, has to an extent been answered. And they're kind of moving on to this next more advanced question, you know, what kind of a nation will China be among other nation states? And, you know... Uh, yeah. It's 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 a difficult time, and it's gonna and it's gonna last a while. It's going to last a very long time. Yeah, you know, we've got a a cold war, which I think is going to last a while. But we've also got profound transitions and fragilities in both countries, which quite a, apart from the cold war are also going to last a while, and which may both exacerbate the cold war and be exacerbated by it. I I, I don't really know how that plays out. Yeah, you just used the word cold war a couple of times. I, I want to drill down on that a little bit when you. Gave this talk, you were already, you know, unequivocally calling this as a year ago, calling the situation we're in now with China a cold war. Um, and yeah. as you said, you know, you take no pleasure in it; that it's descriptive and not prescriptive. Uh, in the last couple of years, I have quoted you, Robert. I've quoted you often, though not by my name, um, because you know, I think officially, when we had this conversation, we were on, you know, Chatham House rules or something. But I've I've always called you a seasoned China hand or a wise China watcher that I greatly respect. I'm going to out you here, though. I think it's fine. Uh, you, you said something on this Zoom call we were on back, I think it was in 2020, where you said we would be in a state of Cold War when, short of actual war, the primary organizing principle in each of the two countries, in China and the United States, was hostility toward the other. And back then, you know, when I heard you say that, I thought, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And whew, we're, we're not there yet. It's not the organizing principle. So what, what's changed? You know, what has, has made it so that now you, you would declare? I think you would have said the same back in 2020. We're not yet in a Cold War. What's changed for you? I would, I would, have, I, I would have changed the subject if you'd asked me. You know, I was, <laughs> I, well, I actually would have said, and I did say at the time, what most people say when they reject the term Cold War, which is that because we are both highly integrated with China, as we weren't with the Soviet Union, and because China is a peer competitor, which the Soviet Union isn't, therefore it's it's not a good 
analogy. And those are both very valid points. And the people who make them are concerned that if we simply call it a Cold War, that we will default to Cold War strategies, which we tell ourselves worked the first time around, um, which won't work the second time around because it's much more difficult. And I, I certainly take those cautions. But what the people who make those points are really arguing is that there can't be any such thing as a Cold War. There can only have been the historical Cold War. Right, right. And that I don't buy because I think it does create uh, a sense of urgency and focus, which is both accurate and helpful if it's properly framed. You know, how did we get here? I mean, step by step, part of it might have, you know, was probably structural and historical in, in something not too far off, you know, sort of the Graham-Allison framing. I, I, I don't wholly accept the Thucydides trap, but nor do I wholly reject it. Mm -hmm. And then specific missteps. I mean, the, the, the advent of Xi Jinping, which I don't believe was, was in the cards uh, right along, and his very specific decisions to go back toward you know, Maoist redness domestically and to be more aggressive internationally and to extend his own rule and to basically move away from reform and opening. I think is is one factor, and then obviously on our side, you know, the Trump acceleration of all of this with the trade war, and then the coming of COVID. Obviously, you know, the Chinese accusation that the United States fears losing its preeminence—that's true—and uh, that emotion and that fear, in part, drives us. But it's very, very far from the sum total of our concerns. And so there were numerous accelerants. I'd say she was an accelerant. Uh, I think Trump and COVID were accelerants mm. uh, that that brought us to this pass. And it's really been in the Biden administration that we've seen every piece of legislation pushed, basically framed in terms of competing with China. So when you started talking about organizing principles of American life, uh, that's that's where my mind went. And we've got you know the China House at State, the China Mission yeah. at. CIA, we've got the new, you know, the committee, committee on, yeah. yeah, the select committee, and there are other versions of this, and we've got committees in universities all over the country that are on the lookout uh, for aspects of this in various ways. Same thing with corporations. I spend a lot of time with corporations and universities. And it's also now not just in Washington. We see this in some ways most worrisomely in you know Michigan now with concerns right. about the ATL, uh, probably the, the, the most concerning, the worst manifestation of this is this proliferation of laws saying that Chinese who aren't American citizens can't buy real estate. Right. Florida, uh, there should Texas, be a much, much louder outcry about this than there has been. There, there's been an outcry, but only if you pay attention to these issues 24-7 would you hear it uh, about just how dangerous this is and, and, and what lies behind it. So it is an organizing principle, equally true on the Chinese side. That, that One of the things I worry about, Kaiser, is that when we speak introspectively and self-critically as we are and as we must, that most of the people who take great care to do that don't turn it around and talk about what is, in fact, yes, deeply concerning in China. The implication is that it's precisely what Beijing says, which is that it's all on us, which I don't believe at all. Right. Uh, it is equally on China and equally, you know, with their rewriting of counterespionage laws, which ask Chinese, not only through the writing of the law, but through propaganda, to see every foreigner in China as a spot, potential spy until proven otherwise, and to also view the Chinese who deal with them in that way. It's equally an organizing principle 
on the Chinese side. So I, I don't want to give listeners the sense um, that I you know take the position that this is all the United States' fault. I don't. Most of the major concerns that even the hawks express about China, I think, are major concerns. My worry is that they are not properly contextualized. They're not properly balanced um, vis-a-vis China, vis-a-vis the United States, vis-a-vis the other changes in the world. That That's my worry. It's not that, oh, no, there's nothing to see here, folks. China is simply a, you know, a developing, peace-loving nation. Right. No. Your willingness, though, to, to be critical of the United States and its policy is fairly uncommon. Um, there's a word that was coined during, during the last Cold War that's often used, and I think often unfairly used, to shut down conversation whenever the accused wants to point out hypocrisy on the part of the accuser. That is, whataboutism, right? You've heard this, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So obviously, it can be used in bad faith. I mean, nowadays, uh, yeah. that, that is a move in an argument that I see often from, you know, these ardent defenders of, of China, which it, it's it's... I understand why it becomes so blithely discredited because it's often used in such bad faith and it's just, you know, the, the analogy is, is ridiculous like temporally or spatially or, or in terms of its scale. It's, it's, it's silly. And yet, I mean, and to bring this back to Christianity, you know, does that Matthew 7, 1 say, you know, it kind of legitimizes what about his move? Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye. How do you feel about that move? I mean, is there such a thing as moral standing and can it be eroded by glaring hypocritical behavior? I, I, I honestly think it can. And so sure I, it can. Sure it can. Yeah. But there's, there's actually, there's, a, there's an operational problem with that quote. And remember, the, the quote ends by, you know, first get the beam out of thine own eye and then get the moat out of sure. your brother. Right. So there is a call to action, to operationalism. The problem with that quote, even within the Christian context, uh, is as that uh, as unrelenting sinners, you know, there's a whole lumberyard of beams in our own eyes and we're constantly adding new ones and we'll never get them out. So we never get to get, you know, never get around to the moat in our brother's eye. Right. How do you how do you do that in the real world? Right. But there but you're right. There's there's what aboutism uh, needs to be criticized but introspection is absolutely essential. So there, there are different forms that this takes. So that when China says, for example, that the fact that the United States imprisons higher percentage of its population than anybody else, and that most of them are poor people of color, one, they're plagiarizing American critics, but but still, absolutely, <laughs> this is a major, major human rights problem, right? The issue with that form of whataboutism is not that they're wrong or that we shouldn't reflect on and change these behaviors, is that they're actually using it to staunch all criticism and end all discussion. Right. That's the, yeah. that's the problem with that. That's it's, the bad faith a, use of it. That's the bad faith use. And so most of China's criticisms of the United States along these lines, again, they, they take them from American newspapers. They get the data from Americans. They just use it in their American human rights report. But yes, it's it's in bad faith. It's not a serious discussion about why these things happen and, and what we can do about them in a humanistic context. All countries face certain problems. How do we come at them? That's not what they're going for. They're going at, shut up, you American imperialist pig dog bastards, and here's why. Right? So that's not a good faith argument. <laughs> Absolutely. One thing that you do raise in, in the talk related to this, and it had me shouting, amen, uh, is about how in conversations 
between Americans and Chinese or among Americans about China. The comparison is so often between American intentions and Chinese realities. Uh, you actually put it more elegantly than that, but you know, between American intentions and Chinese realities rather than vice versa or rather than apples to apples, you know, intentions and intentions. Mm -hmm. uh, another version of this, and, and I think there's some validity to this to be sure, is this, you know, the American says malfeasance X happens in China to which the Chinese person says, well, malfeasance X also happens in your country. And then, of course, the American replies, well, we can talk about malfeasance X happening in our country and our newspapers can report about it and they're not going to be, you know, shut down or people clapped in irons over it, which leaves the Chinese person thinking, but, you know, that doesn't change the fact that malfeasance sex continues unabated, right? Um, you know, you can talk about, you know, gun violence all you want, but gun violence rates are rising. Uh, right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's great that you point that out, but again, it's, it's like one of these things that's just... It's maddening to me to see this constant comparison between, you know, intentions on the one hand and realities or, you know, the, the felt effects, as you put it. Well, this is, this is where the, the problem of moral absolutism comes up um, because it is better to have all of these problems and be able to talk about them. Yes. And what that means is that, yes, uh, this is a case of slightly better than in this instance, right? It's not angels and devils. And the problem is that we tend to leap to angels and devils. The Chinese, of course, are sensitive to parts per million of this for reasons that you and that, that your listeners will understand. And so it's it's that that sense of absolute moral authority to criticize instead of saying something like, yes, this is a major human rights problem. We're not where we want to be and we're not where we're going to be, but thank God Almighty we're not where we were. And here's why we think that talking about these things and you know publishing the statistics that you used to point this out to me, actually helps over the long run, even though it's not an immediate cure. Now, that's a, that's a reasonable right. conversation yeah. to have. And one I hear altogether too infrequently. So, Robert, we're on the subject of, of moral absolutism, and I want to talk about that and its opposite number in the minds of many people anyway, moral or, or cultural relativism. I, I know these two things are distinct, or at least they're in part distinct, moral and cultural relativism, but for purposes of this conversation, I am really talking about the idea that a society with very different economic, geographic, demographic circumstances, different foundational, you know, ethno-religious traditions or uh, pantheons of heroes and villains or, you know, wholly different historical experiences, that they might evolve different, you know, priorities, different values, different ultimately morals or political systems. Uh, and, and I say this to distinguish it from the more kind of, you know, simple nihilistic proposition that all normative claims have exactly the same weight. Uh, I am not talking about that. I'm talking about the idea that there are culturally conditioned, uh, historically shaped uh, views, and that at the very least, we should be able to cut slack to countries uh, that have value systems that are different from ours. Now, for a while, my distinct sense was that the American intelligentsia maybe even the Western intelligentsia, was really willing to cut that kind of slack to see that, you know, cultural relativism was an essentially sound idea and that it had achieved, you know, a kind of a broad consensus uh, across the American, at least academe and, and, and intellectual life. Uh, but today, uh, this has, I think this has been the case now for three decades or more, 
the consensus, even among really secular intellectuals who would, you know, bristle or completely just reject out of hand any kind of, you know, uh, moral absolutist system that was rooted in theology, uh, uh, they are still embracing this set of universal values. There's no longer a willingness to cut slack to countries like China or to Iran or Russia or what have you that have failed to embrace those same values. So is what I've just described, is this something that you've seen happening? Uh, and, and if so, when would you put the start date on that? Or how did it happen and, and, and why? Well, certainly we, we reconsider some of our values when we are concerned about the power of other countries or when we feel threatened. And that's, that's a universal. Uh, it's, it's very hard to speak of these matters without getting down to cases, right? Um, so that you have, you know, in the United States, a lot of, you know, mostly more or less liberal moral relativists who embrace multiculturalism and diversity for very good reasons and who reject especially theologically based moral absolutism as they see it but then they 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 always run into cases that that bring them back to universals and i'm i'm thinking here of you know things like genital mutilation in africa um right. you know, treatment of women in in societies that are wholly sexist which pose huge challenges to the left. You know, I, I've, I've lived in China for many years. Uh, I don't have deep knowledge or long experience of any other countries beside the United States and China. And I've never seen anything in China that made me think that there are not universal values. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that they have an evolutionary character, that they're partially conditioned by wealth uh, and leisure, uh, but I've never f- run into anything that is essentially different. I've, I've run into differences of, for example, emphasis. Uh, and right. I'm thinking here of, of the best in China, the, the best versions of Xiao, right? Xiaoxun, you know, mm-hmm. and, and aspects of that obviously filial can piety. be, yeah, filial piety. Aspects of that can be tyrannical. But in my own case, coming to understand what that meant, it didn't make me love my parents anymore. You know, that, that notion that you sometimes hear in China and other places, well, we, we really love our families. We really care. I mean, this is, this is nonsense. It's offensive. So it didn't make me love my parents more, but it did help me to perform my love for my parents more effectively in a way that I think made a profound difference for them and for me. So that's a, that's a point of relative emphasis. That was, I say, in, in my own case, very, very helpful, but it wasn't a case of different values. It was somewhat, you know, differently conditioned. It was, I suppose, a case of relative emphasis, uh, but it didn't challenge anything fundamental in me. It just made me recognize certain inadequacies, you know, things, things that I'd, I'd taken for granted. So I've, I've never seen anything in China that made me disbelieve in universal values. It's just that some people claim that you know, they claim too great a space for for universal values in areas that are really matters of of taste or you know the evolution of priorities. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, China uh, reprioritizes it differently. Prioritizes. You were talking earlier about how it lops the top off of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but you know, it certainly and you know this whole uh, idea of of humanity is essentially Homo economicus. I, I mean, to some extent, I, I buy that, but I, I see that as, like you said, prioritization. I mean, okay. it puts, 
you know, I don't think the United States would outright categorically deny that uh, economic rights are important. I mean, certainly our left doesn't deny that in the least. But, no, it's it's, to, right. it's it's really a question of whether China can still get away with professing a, a purely survivalist ethic. Uh, and say that because surely the right to eat and the right to security is fundamental, which is true, uh, to claim that therefore, you know, the rights of say women or the rights of political participation, uh, can be dismissed. I, I, I don't think that that holds up even in Chinese terms. And, and this is, this is different saying that, saying that there, that I see no evidence that there are not universal values and ample evidence that there are. This isn't to say that America is the inventor or the conveyor of them by any means. It's not to excuse that kind of cultural arrogance or preachiness. It's only to say, to use language that even the Communist Party is comfortable with, that there is such a thing as our common humanity, right? So Xi Jinping rejects universal values, but espouses what he calls common values. Well, excuse me, teacher, I have a question. Uh (laughs) And so I think that it's this is used just as universal values are sometimes weaponized in the United States. Uh, rejection of them is is also weaponized uh, on the part of China. And unfortunately, what we you know we began with a sort of a who's better than whom, who's teaching whom dynamic, rather than a, a discussion of the evolutionary and to some degree culturally construed character of these issues. And we just sort of blew right by that accusation. And so how did that come – I mean, how did we come to blow up right by that? I don't think that most of the American public sat and thought, well, look, you know, uh, I bought that argument about, you know, the need for food, clothing, and shelter and prioritizing economic rights for a while. But once your per capita GDP passed a particular threshold, I am no – I've lost my patience and now I want you to adhere right. to they, they, No, they obviously didn't do that. There was something else driving it. I mean, when I've put this question to other people, often they have gone to that that period in our lives when you you were memorizing lines for a Beijing or New York, and I was you know woodshedding on guitar to try to be decent enough to, to play in this band in in China. Yeah. Um, but that, during that time, Francis Fukuyama and others were you know proclaiming the end of history and the last man, and you know I, I felt like our country kind of unembarrassedly embraced this idea of sort of historical teleology as something that's always been latent in us. But suddenly it was like, yeah, we are all converging in liberal, unliberal democratic capitalism. And if you're not with with the program, you know, it, we're no longer going to cut you any slack. But do you think that this tendency, I mean, if that in, in, indeed is an, if, an inflection point, I would also look at, you know, Jimmy Carter's presidency when you know, human rights became an important plank in our foreign policy. And it's something that I, you know, even very young me, you know, wholeheartedly endorsed. Right. But uh, I'm, I'm looking at it now and thinking, you know, what, well, when did this start happening? And are the roots of it, to bring it back to our, our conversation about religion, yeah. are the roots of this tendency, are they to be found in our Judeo-Christian tradition? Well, I think that part of it is what is the secular move that you just described, the end of the Cold War, uh, the proclaimed end of history. But we had at the same time in the United States uh, a reemergence of the political power of evangelical Christianity. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we saw even an increase in 
the evangelical sort of zealotry within the Catholic Church, other churches, and a, a, the spreading of that kind of moral absolutist Christian values, which is really a separate, a separate stream from the Fukuyama end of history, but it was more or less concurrent, and it also comes in with the end of the Cold War, and it, it probably begins or reemerges um, in that sense of triumphalism with the end of the Cold War. Uh, but you know, certainly in Judaism, Christianity, all the Abrahamic religions, in in Islam, they are morally absolute. You know, yeah, be absolutely. be ye perfect, be ye perfect as as your father is perfect. But then again, in China, you be a, you have to become a Junza. If you begin with Xiao Qi Shen, right? First, yeah. you begin with introspection, and when you become a perfect person. Um, then you can actually rule the country. So ideas of perfection and even moral absolutism are far from foreign. Oh, yeah, I know. Absolutely. Uh, the Communist Party is very moralistic. Uh, and very teleological in its thinking. I mean, you know, well, what, right. what is Marxism if not, you know, sort of a, a, a roadmap for, you know, how history marches, right? And I, ironically, I've, I've had this discussion with a lot of Chinese friends and I spoke about this a little bit uh, in the talk at Faith and Law, uh, because of the, the the doctrine of the fall, of imperfection. You know, we we in in theory, in the Judeo Christian traditions, we don't expect perfection on earth. Whereas China has, at least in theory, a notion that you can be perfected on earth, and that gets people there tied in all kinds of knots. You've mentioned that you were very uh, influenced by. Levinson, the first thing that I I read in this uh, in this vein was uh, the spirit of Chinese politics. Yeah, Lucian Pai, who gets very involved in you know because perfection is demanded and it has to be performed, uh, therefore it becomes a sort of charade that everybody has to go along with. So I, I think that we're both moralistic, uh, morally arrogant, exceptional mm -hmm. countries, uh, and we're we're grinding up against each other in ways that are increasingly pissing us off. For many decades, they were exciting and, and, and enriching. Uh, you know, and, and you and I, and many, many of our friends, sort of the, the back in the day, yeah, right, were at the interfaces of that. And that was a very enriching, wonderful thing. And, and that piece is, has gone away, and, and we seem now to be just pointing fingers. I've, I've drifted from your original question, but I've, I've been asking these kinds of questions in my interactions with the Chinese for a very, a very long time, not asking them directly, but it's always been a reel that's playing in the background. Yeah. Right? And it's it's been hard to answer because China has evolved so fast, and so China's answers keep changing. Just one quick example. I don't want to go on too long, but you know, I was struck when I first got to China, and the, you would hear a lot that, uh, you know, woman, I know, you know we, yeah. we sort of love the hubbub, and you would hear a lot of, that we love our families and our neighbors and we love human closeness you know, more than you do. And and in some ways I saw what they meant, but I was also aware that a lot of traditional societies make similar claims, right? And what we've seen as China gets rich is that, like us, they use their money to get as far as they can from their beloved fellow human <laughs> beings, right? First, you buy a house way out in Shuni, way out in the country, to get as far away from Zhenau as you possibly can. And then you make that house as large as you can so that even with your nearest and dearest, you each have your own private hidey hole. And so 
you know, like us, uh, the Chinese are using their wealth to isolate themselves from most other human beings. It's it's a common point. It's not a criticism of them. That's why I say there's there's an evolution. There's an evolution to what we value, which is reflected in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And we're seeing this in real time in China, which makes it very hard to say with any, you know, answer these questions with any certainty. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that, that one universal truth is that humanity always makes a virtue of necessity. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, while we had no choice but to live cheek by jowl, of course, we're going to proclaim our great love for Renal. Right, right, right. right. And, then that, yeah. and then that's that's enough of Renal. Yeah, God. I mean, that's why I live in Chapel Hill now. I mean, you get the <laughs> hell away from I mean, I'm kind of done with living in ridiculous, you know, mega cities. God. <laughs> so... Robert, you talk about the need for a doctrine of a just Cold War. You know, you raise this this question. Is it permissible in a Cold War to deliberately harm the well-being of one-fifth of humankind? Are we down for that? Right. What are some of the planks that you would consider in in creating a doctrine of a just Cold War? I mean, you, you talk about in, in your talk, and anyone is listening to this is just listening to your talk about, you know, the in need for a just cause, that it be lawfully declared that the intention must be good, uh, that all other means must have first been tried, you know, that has right. a reasonable and, and so forth. But what, have you been thinking about what a just Cold War would involve? Well, I think it does come down to this question of actively harming welfare. And this is very tough. It's, it's hard to discern what is offense? What is defense? You know, if we look at our current export controls uh, that we announced last October, you know, what is what is this about? You know, we, we've Lenin said the capitalists will sell sell us the rope we use to hang them, and we're essentially saying no, uh, we're not that stupid. Not going to happen. We're not right. going to sell you technology that you you can use to target us. And I think that for most Americans, uh, that strategic logic is clear. Uh, and that they would uh, approve of that. Uh, the issue is that that logic is inherently absolute again and expansive. And the way that I think of it, uh, you know, we've been seeing a lot with generative AI, and we're all we're all reading about and trying to anticipate AI. I think one way to think of it is that anytime you read an article about all of the promises of AI, right? Agriculture, you can do you know, very specific weeding. You can put precisely the amount of water that you need. Mm-hmm. For each plant to save water and irrigation, transportation, education, medicine especially, cures right. for cancer, synthetic medicine. We have said to the Chinese people, not you, bub, not for you if we can help it, right? right? Um, now, the counter, you could make an argument there that there is a difference at these very high level, you know, if, if we're harming their welfare or more, we're not, the argument we're not so much harming their welfare as preventing them going from 50 nanometers to two nanometers. Right. And that is different uh, than harming their welfare in terms of, you know, uh, keeping them from having penicillin or poisoning their wells, right? There's, a, we have to have a discussion about this active harming of welfare or this passive non provision of the further most advanced form of whatever it is. Uh, and what are we comfortable with there? But before we have that discussion, there's the prior discussion of how, how, how great is the threat really? 
and we we that gets mentioned, and people like uh, Jessica Chun Weiss, for example, is still you know carrying this banner and, and trying to you know stand into the wind and say just a cotton picking minute. Let's let's think about this. Yeah, and God uh, bless her because yeah. And so I think this is this is really about getting clear about what the threat is. And here again, we we we, we tend to have the wrong kinds of conversations. We we begin. And I think of this sort of as the Cheney move, as the post 9-11 move, mm-hmm. which says, okay, what is, what is the worst thing we can plausibly imagine happening? Right. Okay, well, it's this, that, the other thing. It's pretty bad, right? If that, thing's ha- if that thing happens, wouldn't you wish in retrospect that you'd done everything possible beforehand to prevent it? Well, yes, we will wish that. But can we live that way? Can we govern that way? Can that become a guide to policy? And so I think we have now, you know, we, we, we know that if China were, and, and here I mean the Communist Party as Xi Jinping conceives it, if they were, um, a hundred, you know, fully, fully resourced and unobstructed, what would they do? And is that bad? Well, here's what they would do. And yes, it's bad. And so we've gotten in this bad Cheney-esque habit of, Planning policy and judging the other by the most extreme, the worst results of their desires for us. And in foreign policy, the real question is never what does the other guy want? It's what will they settle for, right? Right. And how can we, through diplomacy and alliances, as well as interaction and cooperation, temper their views such that it's something that we, you know, that we may not like, but that we can accept short of war. And we, we sort of blown right by that to letting the masters of war run things, such that the question I ask about a just cold war almost doesn't occur, which is why, why I ask that. So I think first we have to have a, a better conversation about China's goals and China's means and our goals and our means. And I think that we would find that while we have to change because of China's power and because of a whole lot of other things, um, this is potentially a manageable situation, short short of war. And just as we should be thinking, what will China settle for ultimately? Chinese are, are sitting well, around. What will they settle for is, as they change? And you know, it's it's a cold war, and the the goal of cold wars are to keep them cold, which means that it's a play for time. Um, and that time, you know, time for what? Time for change, including change for us. And this is another part that our political discourse is allergic to. There's no politician who talks about the need for change. Uh, I don't agree with everything that Xi Jinping means when he says, you know, the world is changing fast and there are opportunities and threats and we need to study it to grasp the opportunities and reduce the threats. He means something in that also that is dangerous. He means what he says to Putin when he says that we're driving the change. But he's essentially correct. And you never hear that in our political discourse. God forbid that we should should suggest that the United States change other than, of course, to become wealthier and more powerful. So all of those discussions, again, that we've just sort of blown by are prior to, you know, and then if we say China really does pose not an existential threat, uh, but a, a major concerning threat. Then we do have to have this conversation about a, a just Cold War. And I think I would probably come down if we were truly convinced that the threat was dire enough, that I can imagine a doctrine in which 
you do no direct harm to the welfare of another people, but that you are not morally obligated to aid in their subsequent development if there's a good reason to think that doing so could be a mortal harm to oneself. That's maybe the beginning of what could be a coherent doctrine. The question is whether we're really there yet. I'm looking forward to the book. <laughs> <laughs> so you've anticipated somewhere where I was going with, with this conversation when I was suggesting that you know we are trying to sort of suss out the limits of what China would tolerate. They're doing the same. Uh, the historian Adam Tooze, who's somebody I really I really enjoy reading, he's been thinking a lot about China of late. And a couple of years ago, I had him on the show uh, after reading this line that he wrote in you know a piece. He, he said, "It is not clear that American politics can digest plurality other than from a position of dominance." And then he goes on. He quotes Larry Summers, who said something like. Can the U.S. imagine a viable global economic system in which the U.S. is no longer the dominant player? Could an American political leader acknowledge that reality in a way that permits negotiation over what such a world would look like? I mean, this is exactly what you've just said, is that, yeah. you know, well, no, we, we, we can't imagine it. We've not heard an American political leader talk about a world that where America is no longer well, let's use the ugly word, hegemonic, right? <laughs> I mean, Tooze answers the question by saying, well, right now, from Joe Biden at least, the answer is not on my watch. Right. Right. So, so did, yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like we have a lot to talk about here domestically. I mean, it, it's being, China is a, a fantastic catalyst for a conversation that we are very unwilling to have. But... I mean, you live in D.C. I mean, you're, you're there all the time. What what are you hearing? Well, I, I, I think that Tooze is correct that right now this is, and it's, that's the right way to put it, it's beyond what can be imagined by most people who are doing the imagining. And of course, that is a statement about the limits of their imagination, not the facts of the world, right? right? It's a statement about the limits of our political discourse, and it's one of the places that I sort of hit a, a little bit of a, a brick wall because I, you know, would, would theoretically uh, love to be spending far less on guns and a lot more on butter. And uh, I can imagine vaguely a world in which the United States is just one country, a, a bigger one, um, you know, for the most part, better pop music and still better desserts than China. Right. Uh, but they would be ahead of us in other ways. Uh, I can imagine, you know, a, a China that is based on strands that are that are very real within China itself, being a most welcome and, and enriching international country. Under Xi, that imagined China is getting somewhat more imaginary, but it, it's not completely out of reach. Um, and I, so, you know, I can imagine, because I've been working on it for several decades, a United States that is not necessarily preeminent. And that's be like, and that you know can certainly be okay. The difficulty, and this is the way Washington asks the question, uh, is yes, but what if there are bad guys? Yeah, right? right. What if there are bad guys? And so that's a, that's a fair question. If if we abandon the field to say China and Russia, is is that okay? You know, is is that does that take us in a direction that we that we want to go in? The difficulty, because on the one hand, it's easy to say no. On the other hand, we have to acknowledge that we're inclined to say no, right? We're, we're inclined to see 
the bad guys uh, because they justify continued expenditures, continued pursuit of power. Now, in the case of current China, uh, Xi Jinping and, and Putin, I think there are real problems that we need to be extremely vigilant about and that we need to counter, not in every single instance, but is in terms of the global norms and rules. So that, that I think we, we, can, we can limit the field to a degree. But so this is, you're asking, and Tuz is asking exactly the right question. Uh, my answer in theory, you, what, Washington can't imagine it now. There are people there who certainly can, but they always say that there are bad guys. There, there are evil people, and there are, you know, who will do bad things. And then that becomes self-justifying, and there we remain stuck. And I don't see any real way out of it. Um, you know, if if China now, if, if if this really is the historic slowdown, such that China retracts its claws internationally, uh, it's a rather ugly metaphor that's fairly common, and focuses domestically, that could change it. Um, I suppose in another way, a, a, a Trump victory in 2024 that was entirely uninterested in global order and competition and that was also, you know, had us retracting our claws and moving inward could be a different way that this happens. That's um, not how I want that outcome to come no, about. No, <laughs> but, but it's an imaginal way that this goes, right, on right, our side. Right, right. You know, only if we seed the field in a way that, that you know, Trump seems willing to do. Um, so I'm, it's, it, it is the question, Kaiser, I got to say, it's, it's one that I just get, I get stuck on. Yeah, yeah. Robert Daly, what an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I am really eager to have you back on before too long. I feel like we're still just touching on a small fraction of the topics that I would like to explore with you in future conversations. So thank you for taking so much time. And uh, so, thank you for, for letting me run that, that fantastic speech. Pleasure, pleasure to be with you. And I look forward to listening to the podcast. Not just this one, to continue to listen to, 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 your, to your work. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, for now, let's move on to recommendations. Uh, just a quick reminder first that our next China conference is just about the way. Again, you know, this is one of the big questions that underlies it. This is themed around what does China want? So uh, I think it's it's going to be fantastic. We've got Yasheng Huang giving a keynote address. A, a lot of my other favorite thinkers like Evan Feigenbaum, who I'm going to be involved. I'm going to be doing a fireside chat with right after the keynote. Uh, we've got uh, Dmitry Savasopolo and Ling Ling Wei. Uh, we've got Amy Sulico. I, I, one of the, the ones that I'm most excited about is a, a talk that I'm going to be giving or I'm, I'm, I'm going to be moderating a, a conversation with Isa Ding and Taisu Zhang. And it's going to be about the mind of modern China. It's about, you know, where that Levinson question is today, right? Now, in a world where China, to a, a measure, a pretty substantial measure, has achieved wealth and power in a way that is sort of consonant with Chinese identity. What what next? You know, where is the mind of modern China today? On the evening of, of November first, for a sort of VIP event, Jeremy and I will be will be talking to Eric Olander, who runs the fantastic China Global South Project, and Maria Repnikova of Georgia Tech, who's been doing just fascinating work on Chinese communications to the global south, on you know soft power more generally, and she's been focusing especially on Ethiopia and and more broadly in East Africa. So. Really looking forward to that conversation as well. Please join us. Get a VIP ticket so you can come to that uh, that that night before the dinner. Uh, go to www.nextchinaconference.com for more information. I hope to see many of you there. All right. 
Let's move on to recommendations. Robert, what do you have for us? Well, I've got a, an unusual one. You're asking about books, and uh, I'm going to go way back and recommend a children's book from 1956 oh. because I know that there are a lot of young and youngish listeners to this podcast, and they have kids. And this is a book by a, a Dutch writer named Minder de Jong. It's mm-hmm. called The House of Sixty Fathers. Uh, it's based on a, a real historical event, uh, a little Chinese boy uh, in Hunan, who during what is not named in the novel as the Ichigo Offensive, but it clearly is the Ichigo Offensive, gets separated from his parents in Hunyang, and he he, he drifts down the river uh, with his pet pig, uh, Glory of the Republic, and a bunch of little ducks, and he ends up um, going cross-country, trying to stay alive uh, during that period, running into some uh, what are clearly communist guerrillas. They're not named as that. It's not a, it's not a political book. It's a, it's a children's novel. And it's one of the first things that was illustrated by Maurice Sendak of Where oh. the Wild Things Are. Fame, oh beautiful little black and white drawings. And it ends up, uh, the boy ends up running into uh, the American Air Corps, and that's the House of Sixty Fathers. And this actually happened. And then he gets reunited with his parents at the end. But it was it was the first book I ever read about China. It was probably 10 or 11. First novel I I read about China. And I, I, it would be dishonest to say that it sparked my interest in China. It, it didn't, but it did spark my interest in novels uh, and in reading. And I've come back to it many times since. I actually wrote a, a treatment for a, a film for it a few years ago. And if you have you know young kids who like to read, it's a, it's a striking book. And there's a, dis, a description in there of starvation when, he's, when the little boy is starving that sort of haunted me my whole life. Wow. Uh, and so My Dirt Dijon, The House of Sixty Fathers, it's available very cheaply in paperback, uh, illustrated by Maurice Sendak. And uh, you'll like it yourselves, uh, but your kids will love it. Maurice Sendak, who just died a few years ago. Who just died a few uh, years back, yep. Yeah. No. Fantastic recommendation. My God. I'm going to buy that. I mean, actually, I've been sort of, even though my kids are, are you know, grown, I've been buying some of my, my favorite childhood books just to have them. Like, I have a like, I have a first edition of Where the Wild Things Are. Wow. Uh, oh my god. That 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 I, is still on my bookshelf. One that I bought recently was The King with Six Friends. I don't know if you if you've come I across do, that I one. do not know that. I, I just remember that from when I was I was a kid but uh check it out. I mean it, it no longer quite would cut muster in uh in you know today's today's world of the politics are, are not quite right but, well, it's, but yeah. the gender politics especially but it's it's good there are a lot of these books you know um the story about ping shows yeah. up in louis ck and the five chinese brothers made it to seinfeld and yeah. a lot of these books we grew up with they they stuck with a lot of people yeah, yeah they sure did ping the duckling yeah i remember yeah. this all right um i'm gonna fast forward to very adult reading but my one of my recommendations for the week uh i added a couple of uh, just since uh, I started thinking about this, but my, my, my initial was that I reread recently Wolf Hall uh, by the late Hilary Mantel. Actually, I re-listened to it. I, I, I listened to, there's two narrations out on there on Audible. They're both very good, or at least the, the, the um, Ben Miles one, I've only listened to the sample and he seems to do a very good job. But the, the Simon Slater narration from 2009 is just masterful. He just does every voice just in such an interesting – they're so distinct. He's just a phenomenal actor, a voice actor. But the writing, of course, is what propels it. Um, so I think Ben Miles does the other ones in the series uh, 
bring up the bodies and the mirror and the light, which I, I both very much enjoyed. But just going back to Wolf Hall, uh, just her prose style, her grasp of human psychology, the, the humor, it's really shot through with a lot of really sly humor. Uh, and most of all, her choice of Cromwell as a character, uh, he's just so fascinating. I mean, she kind of puts him in this book as the first modern in a medieval world, in the end of medieval England. He is a, a modern human. His grasp of the world is so much more sophisticated uh, than, than those around him. It's it's just fantastic. But uh, if you love Hilary Mantel and you haven't read A Place of Greater Safety, which is her novel of the French Revolution, that's another one I just could not recommend more highly. Uh, it may be, I mean, both of them are among my, my simply my favorite novels of all time. But uh, that one is, is, like I said, it's the French Revolution. It really focuses on uh, Demolin and Danton and Robespierre. Robespierre is, is another character who she complicates, makes a very kind of interesting in there. Anyway, um, and then one, you know, music recommendation. Uh, the, the show, uh, you know, what is it called? Rock Band Summer. Um, it, it's a very popular kind of music show in China these days. So, this season, they're featuring pretty heavily this Inner Mongolian band. They've been around for a long time. They're called Anda Union. Uh, and and Anda is the, the Mongolian word for blood brother. You know, it's like Temujin and Jamuko or Andas, right? Uh, but the Anda Union, uh, they're an Inner Mongolian band. They're from Hohat. And they're mind-blowingly great. They're just amazing. So watch their performances on uh, Rock Band Summer, the Chinese television show. Uh, but also check out their music. You know, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube. And I, I haven't looked at Spotify yet. But, you know, visually, they're also just arresting and great. They're not a metal band. I mean, they, they play almost all traditional instruments. Um, there's guitar in it. But, but it's, you know, it's all horsehead fiddles and all sorts of, of, of instruments that you're probably not even familiar with. So check it out, Anda Union. It's funny you mentioned Blood Brothers. It was it was striking because as you were talking about Wolf Hall, I, I was thinking of a, a line that I love from uh, Simone Lace channeling Baudelaire. Yeah. He said, "You know, lovers of literature who are somewhat smitten by things Chinese, this happy few, my like, my brothers." <laughs> oh, it's good. It's good. It's good to be part of the brotherhood. This is part of what I dig about you is that, you know, you bring a sensibility about the humanities to understanding China. And this is something that's so, so sorely lacking in so many of the people who are just so focused on national security. I think that if you don't have yeah. a humanities grasp, I mean, I, I, God, I, I can't even imagine trying to learn the language without having been pretty well-read in the history. Well, you know, unfortunately, a lot of it has to do with professionalization in the United States. The six yeah. years I was at the Hopkins and Nanjing Center, a lot of absolutely just brilliant young Americans learning Chinese, learning it well from a humanities point of view. Um, but they end up going to business school or law school like like most of us. I mean, you and I have just barely found ways to make it to near retirement as generalists. But I think that for people younger than us, Kaiser, I'm not sure that there are any channels like that left. Yeah. To mean to re remain a lifelong generalist uh, in relation to China, uh, I don't think we can do it. And a lot of them, 
you know, the younger folks coming up now may end up being, you know, lifelong cold warriors if things go as badly as they might. So I, I, I'm with you all the way, but I, I also think that, you know, we were lucky to, to make it this long and it was really a function of when we came up and what the possibilities were and the accessibility of China itself. You know, we were able to get in in a way that young people, they, if they go to China today, they're not going to meet Zhang Wen and Sui Jen. These guys are in the stratosphere. Yeah. So we were, we were awfully lucky. But, you know, even even given that grim, you know, likelihood that they won't be able to have careers as generalists, they can still take their discipline and leaven it. They can still just add to it. They can, you know, nobody's preventing them from reading a lot of literature on the side, from reading, you know, more history on the side. I mean, you just sort of bring that into your, your understanding of China that's that, you know, comes out of that whatever discipline, IR, or political mm-hmm. science. I mean, Christ. <laughs> Robert, thank you. Thank you once again. What what a, a wonderful, stimulating conversation. And I'm sure that, that many of our listeners are going to, to enjoy it enormously. Thank you. So great to have you on. I look forward to our next chat. Pizza, pizza. It's good. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Shitter or on Facebook at, at the China Project, and be sure to check out all of the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.